excited. Uh, this is a good time. Now, uh, we have been going through the book of Ruth uh, together in a series called The Little Town of Bethlehem, which is the Bethlehem not of Jesus' day, but of hundreds of years earlier. And one of uh, Jesus' ancestors uh, what is the subject of the book of Ruth. Now, uh, I've been so encouraged, guys, that God has met so many people through this series. I, I did not expect that this to be this would be a book that a number of people would connect so strongly with, but that is just God meeting people in his word. And I also want to say, uh, if you benefited from any of the study that I've done or things that I've shared, uh, I want to let you know that I've cheated, 100% cheated on the series of the book of Ruth because our community group went through the book of Ruth last summer. This past summer. And so we took a chapter a month and we walked through it together, and God met us in an amazing way. And so I want to let you know as you think about 2022 and what you're going to commit yourself to and give yourself to in the next year, uh, and maybe you want to grow in your understanding of who God is. You want to understand the Bible more. Maybe, to be frank, like you open up the Bible and you try to read a little bit, but it just, you just feel lost. Uh, Get into a community group. That's not the only purpose of community group, but one of the great purposes in community group is you learn to read the word with other people. And so uh, it's a cheat code for Bible reading. Get into a community group, uh, and they're going to kick back off in January. If you missed the Christmas parties, uh, sorry, there's way more parties yet to come. And we have one community group that that we're going to is probably going to win the Christmas Cheer of the Year award next Sunday. And you'll find out which community group that is next Sunday. But this group, I think, was the most successful. Don't you think, Alec, spreading Christmas cheer? Uh, I think so. So you'll find out who that is next week. Uh, Chapter 4 in particular, I want to give a shout out to Lloyd Hamilton, who led our community group Bible study on Chapter 4. And he took us right to the main point of Chapter 4, which is Jesus. And so uh, I'm using Lloyd Hamilton's notes. Shout out to him. All right. Please turn to Ruth Chapter 4 today. Now, we've been spending our time in the book of Ruth these past few weeks, and we have seen something of a Hallmark movie, as it were, uh, if you want to call it that. We've seen a bitter old lady have her heart strangely warmed by the kindness of God. We have seen a young widow who is an outsider be welcomed in to a new people by the kindness of God. We have seen a rich man of character who maybe thought that marriage had passed him by find a worthy woman in the kindness of God. This entire book is about the kindness of God, but Ruth 4 adds an important, a key element in this trajectory. So if you think of the book of Ruth, chapters 1 through 4, if you think where it starts, it starts with emptiness, in chapter four, in chapter one, in chapter four, it ends with fullness. So emptiness to fullness through the kindness of God. But there's an important addition Ruth four makes that that kindness of God comes through a person. That kindness of God comes through a redeemer. We see in Ruth chapter 3, we're going to review this briefly, Boaz's words to Ruth. Ruth asks him for redemption, and he replies in verse 11, Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. But then the wrinkle is introduced into the plot here, a plot twist, as it were. We are unaware. We as an audience are taken aback to read verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If, I will, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. 
But if he's not willing to redeem you, or the language literally is, if he's not glad, if he's not more than willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So Ruth 4 is the resolution to this cliffhanger. If you think of the Ruth, book of Ruth like a TV series, it ends with a cliffhanger where you're like, yes, they're going to be together forever. He's going to redeem her. Everything's going to work out. And all of a sudden, plot twist, there's this other guy. See you next week. And then this pickup, we pick up next week. Now, in order to understand Ruth 4, you need to understand uh, the answer to a crucial question. What is a redeemer? Now, you may have heard that song. We may have sung, that, 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 uh, sung a song that had the word redeemer in it, or you may have heard it in a Bible study, but you may not be familiar with it. For many uh, folks, redeem or redemption just means salvation. It just means, you know, God redeemed us, God saved us. There's not really any particularness to that word. But in the Old Testament, the word redemption was very specific. It, 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 it was, uh, there was a group of laws in the Old Testament related to redemption. And the word redemption literally means to buy back, to purchase back, right? So think of uh, back when we used to have Kmart. Or, do we still have Kmart? Is Kmart alive? No, Kmart's dead. I can't keep track. Is Toys R Us still dead or are they back alive again? It's too much. Are they still dead? They're in the process. But then they're, okay, never mind. I can't keep up. So back when they had those stores that you could put things on layaway, right? You had an item, and it was yours, but you had to keep paying and redeem it. I had to buy it back, in a sense, to purchase it. Or maybe things are tough one holiday. Somebody goes into a pawn shop. They take a family heirloom, pawn it, buy Christmas presents, wait for that next paycheck, buy it back. That's the sense of the word redemption. A, a price is paid in order to restore someone, to rescue them, to restore them, and to give them a future again. For example, if a family member had been sold into slavery, in the ancient world, if you couldn't pay your debts, uh, you became essentially a bond servant until your debt was paid. But a redeemer could intervene and pay your debt for you, right? So th this is the, the family of laws in the Old Testament. Now, there's two laws in particular that relate to the book of Ruth. First was the, the redemption of a family uh, where a widow dies without having any children, right? So she's married, uh, she, her husband passes away, they have no children, and what that means is that there's no safety and protection and provision for this woman anymore. And further, that the name of her husband, the name of her husband's family would pass away, would, would be kind of gone at that point. So there was a provision that, that if there was an eligible brother, he would marry the widow, and the widow's first child would be, legally speaking, his brother's child, okay? So in other words, he's, he's raising up offspring for his brother, so his brother's name does not perish from the earth. And his brother's child would then inherit, you know, whatever he had that his brother owned. Um, so that's one set of provisions. Second relates to land. Now, the, 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 the marriage and the land thing are kind of intermixed here. So the, the land provision is that if, that if somebody passes away and uh, they, there's no heir for the land, the land may be sold, the land may be lost to the family, but a redeemer can come purchase the land. They almost have like the first right of purchase. They would come purchase the land and restore it to the line of the family. 
Now, Christopher Ashe is a Bible scholar from England, and I listened to an interview with him this week that was incredibly helpful on this point, because what you're going to see in Ruth 4 is a, a number of conversations about the land. And at first, it feels like, what's the deal with the land? I thought Ruth was the main thing that we're concerned with here. There's all this talk about the land. Well, if you don't understand the land, you don't understand Ruth 4, and if you don't understand Ruth 4, you don't understand the book of Ruth. Here's what's going on with the land. This is no ordinary land. Now, for Americans, look, if you've got, you know, if you have a house, you sell a house, you buy another house, you sell another house, right? We're not really familiar, especially within city areas, with a family piece of land. But for the Israelites, remember, they were brought out of Egypt. They were brought to which land? To the promised land, the land of milk and honey, God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, gave them this land, and each tribe was assigned land. There's all these laws in the Old Testament. You have to read page after page, and this tribe's land goes from here to here and here to here. And and you're thinking, what is the deal with the land? Here's the deal with the land. The land, according to Christopher Ash, is summed up in this, this phrase. The land is their share in the blessings and promises of God. Okay? So it's not just land. It, it is their share in the promises to Abraham, in the promises to Moses, and the promises to the people of God. All of that is bound up in their land. And so to lose the land would be the greatest tragedy that could befall a family in ancient times. Now, we, we don't really have any equivalent to this. I was trying to think of what, what's the kind of sort of equivalent to this Uh, for Americans, and I couldn't come up with something, except maybe this, okay, maybe. One of my cousins is getting married, and so I'm I'm getting a gift together for her. A bunch of my cousins, uh, like everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people in El Paso, right, Everybody's co- everybody has like 30 cousins that live in El Paso. And every holiday, all the cousins get together, and you're not even sure what people's relationships are exactly. You're like, is that a real uncle, or is that kind of an uncle, or is that like somebody's third cousin that's kind of, my, you know, like, that's the way we roll here in El Paso, right? And we would go to my grandparents' house every holiday, right? New Year's Day, there'd be menudo, which I didn't like to eat, I'm sorry, but, and, and football, right? Or, or Easter, there would be Easter egg hunts in the backyard. But I especially remember Christmas. I remember Christmas in my dad's parents' house on Christmas Day, and we would have already helped. There was a separate time we'd go over and help decorate the tree. All the grandkids would get the boxes of ornaments out, and they would put them on the tree. And, and we'd, we'd come back on Christmas, and there'd be gifts for everybody and we would do plays. I don't know why, but one of my older cousins was like, we're going to do a play of, of you know, baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph. And so she was assigning people roles, you know, like you're Joseph, you're, you know, and, and like, why do I have to be the sheep again? You know, that kind of thing. Like, I look stupid in a rope. Just put the bathrobe on. This is grandpa's robe. I look ridiculous. You know, like this is, this is what we did, right? And so as a gift to her and really to all of my cousins, um, I had an artist, I found an artist that does this did like a, a, an illustration of that house that we spent so many Christmases and years in. And so he sent me yesterday the artwork for the house. And I was not prepared, like emotionally, to see the house. I mean, I, it's still here in El Paso, and I still drive by it. But the people who bought the house after my parents, grandparents, you know, passed away, they, they have not kept up the front yard. doesn't look the same. So, but I got this illustration, and there was something in my heart that was like, oh. It's the house. 
like, and, and in a moment, it was so weird. In the moment, I was looking at the detail of this planter in the front and these three big windows in the front of the house, and it was like I could see through the windows to the Christmas tree. And I, and it, I don't know how to describe this. I like felt what I felt as a kid being surrounded by my family next to that tree. And that house, it's only as I've grown older that I understood what the house represented for my family. Because my grandfather, who bought the house, was an immigrant from Guadalajara. He, he lost everything. His family lost everything in Mexico, came to the U.S., restarted his life, had to scrap and scrape and fight for every dollar that he made. And, and that house, in a sense, represented that he made it in America. It's a beautiful home in Mission Hills good schools, right down the street from the university, right? What that represented for his family was, in a sense, his share in the American dream. And so all of that, as I look at this house, all of that is kind of wrapped up. I understand what I didn't understand as a kid. All of it's wrapped up. And, and it, that's maybe a tiny glimpse of what Naomi would feel walking back into Bethlehem after 10 years. Don't you think she walked out to her family's, her, her husband's field, her husband's family's field where she had been married and Elimelech had taken her and maybe there was a house that had been abandoned for 10 years and fields that were dead all around and she longed for that home to be filled again. This is what Naomi has lost in a sense. Not just, so, so Ruth is important, but there's, there's so much more going on in the background than just Ruth. What, what, what you're meant to see is a redeemer is somebody who acts on behalf of a relative, paying a cost to restore the family, to do three things, to rescue the family from the current situation they're in, to restore them to relationship and wholeness. And I'm going to make up a word because I'm an English major, and you're allowed to do that. They give you a license. The, the, the word I'm going to make up today is refuturing. So the, the, there's a rescuing there, there's a restoring there, but there's a refuturing, a giving of the future back to the family who has no future. This is what Ruth is asking Boaz to do for her. And this is what chapter four is all about. Now, we're gonna see three portraits in chapter four. The first portrait is this, the anti-redeemer. Verse one, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, the gate being where all the business in the town was conducted. Behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And Boaz took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So Boaz is not just like having him over for a chat. He's gathering a court, right? This is a legal proceeding here. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought, and that just pause there, actually. Naomi knows that she has no other thing of value on which she can live. So Naomi is at the point prior to this of going to sell her land, her, her family's share, in a sense, in the blessings of God, which is a great tragedy. 
But they're at that point. They have no other options other than Boaz. So I thought I would tell you of it, verse 4, and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, the, the, this other man said, I will redeem it. Now this sounds like, uh-oh, uh-oh. this is not... Ruth, you know, three, where everything's going to, this is the romantic story. There's some other guy that's jumping in here. But Boaz is smart, the way he sets this up. Verse five, then Boaz says, essentially, by the way, by the way, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take the right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So the Redeemer, we learn, there's been, you know, the writer has been calling him the Redeemer. The Redeemer should have been in quotes the whole time. The so-called Redeemer turns out to not be a Redeemer at all. Now, Here's initially what he thinks. He thinks, okay, I'm going to buy this land. I'm going to add it to my inheritance and my name and my uh, share of land that I give my children will be even larger and my name will be even greater as it's passed down among my descendants and I will have more to pass on to those who come after me. But Boaz says, okay, you also acquire Ruth and by the way, there's this law and you you probably should fulfill the spirit of that law. And he realizes something important. He realizes, uh uh-oh, if I marry Ruth, which, by the way, may be distasteful, you know, to begin with, the Moabite, like, ugh, some Moabite lady. I want a dead guy's Moabite wife is what he's thinking. And the first child of their union, their first son, if there is a son, he would then be legally Malon's child, Okay? It it would not be his, I mean, it would be his child, but legally speaking, and that child would inherit this piece of land. And so this is what this guy's going to have to do. He's going to have to buy a parcel of land, do all the maintenance and upkeep to do it, and then if he has a son, he's going to hand all of that back over to this other guy, lessening the inheritance for his other kids and his own name that he's so concerned about. Now, at first, it seems like well, understandable, maybe. I read one commentator who said that, that what he does seems sensible in this sense, that, that if all he's judging by is what he senses and what he sees and what he feels and what's right in front of him, it makes sense. And yet, he misses something crucial in his calculation. There's a sharp irony here. When Boaz calls him friend, That word actually is a rhyming Hebrew word that you use in place of somebody's name. That the name used literally, translated by Dr. Ian Duguid, is Mr. So-and-so. Meaning this, Dr. Duguid says this. The irony is that by seeking to protect his future legacy in this way, Mr. So-and-so ended up leaving himself nameless missing out on having a share in the biggest legacy of all, a place in God's plan of salvation. 
Meaning this, the way he's looking at life is just, you know, what's right in front of him, what makes sense for him, and he's concerned. Man, I don't want my name to be lessened through my descendants. I don't want to do all of this and marry some lady that I don't want to marry in order to, to help a dead guy and his family name. And like, no, I don't want to do that. I'm thinking about myself and my name and my legacy, and the irony is in the book of Ruth, he is nameless. And here's the thing that I think we all need to consider. How often do we make decisions in the same way in our life? How often do we make the sensible choice? Do Good says this, we often evaluate our involvement in things like evangelism and ministries of mercy according to the same scale as Mr. So-and-so. We ask, what's in it for me? Will it fulfill me? Will I enjoy it? What will it cost me? In doing the arithmetic, we get the answers as completely wrong as he did because we have left God entirely out of the equation. That's the anti-redeemer. Second portrait, the glad redeemer. And Boaz is one of my favorite characters in the entire Bible. I love this dude. Boaz is not clinical and impartial. He appears, he goes through the legal elements, but he cares deeply for Ruth and for her mother-in-law. And when he speaks of this other redeemer, when he says, if this other redeemer will redeem you, the language he uses, if this other redeemer is glad to redeem you, if he's more than willing to redeem you, then let him do it. If not, I'm going to do it because the implication is he is glad to do it. This is not Boaz like, oh, I got to... You know, help a dead guy, you know, and his, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's thinking this girl is a catch. She can lift 80 pound sacks of grain. She is buff, right? She, like, she, she's committed to God, coming from another country, striking out just like Abraham. I mean, this girl is amazing, and, and I can't believe I get to do this. This is his attitude, verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. What do we see in Boaz? What kind of a redeemer is he? He is a redeemer par excellence. He is, first of all, a redeemer embodying the heart of the law. Uh, one of the things the scholars point out about the book of Ruth is that Ruth's function in the canon of Scripture is, is a particular function. There's a dispute over where it should go, sometimes in collections of the canon, because one of the ways it functions is that it helps uh, it, it becomes a lens through which to interpret the entire Mosaic law. That the, the Mosaic law had all these, you know, regulations and hear about the land and this about this and this about that. But more than all of that, what God's people should be getting through the Mosaic law is not just the regu specific regulations, but the heart of the law, what the law is intending to do. And this is what you see Boaz get. He gets it. This is the heart of the law, to love his neighbor as himself, to love the sojourner, to love the widow, to love the needy. This is what he does. And he pays a significant cost. 
John Stott comments, in all these cases of redemption in the Old Testament law, there was a decisive and costly intervention. Somebody paid the price necessary to free property from mortgage, animals from slaughter, persons from slavery, even death. If, look, this is the amazing thing about Boaz. Boaz pays a great cost. This is where it diverges a little bit from a Hallmark movie. Because in a Hallmark movie, it's not usually that expensive to you know, fall in love and live happily ever after, right? Nobody usually has to pay a decisive cost. This is what Boaz does, though. Think about what he's going to do. Remember, he's well-to-do, right? He's got a large field. He's got standing in the community. He's risking his standing in the community, marrying a Moabite. How's the community going to react to that? Right? He's, he's risking his wealth. All of a sudden, he's going to take on a wife and her, you know, her mother-in-law. I mean, that's a package deal. You know, he's going to have to provide for them. He's going to have to pay money to, to get their field, because maybe there were lien or debts that it, it owed, or there was some legal thing going on there. And so he's going to lose money, take on expenses, and then the first child that he has will not legally be his, and then will take all the property that he's invested all this money in. And, and here's the thing. This will become clear later. Ruth had been married for a number of years, it appears, prior to her husband's death, and had no children. So it's entirely possible that even if Ruth has a child, it may only be a child, right? This is, does not seem to be a woman who's going to produce, you know, 12 children. And so he's thinking he may have one child that doesn't bear his name, that inherits everything he owns, and his name perish from the earth. And yet Boaz gladly pays this cost and the thing that I, zeroing in on this, the thing to notice about Boaz is Boaz is the redeemer acting for the interests of others. Ian Duguid comments this. Part of the message of the book of Ruth is that God's kingdom operates on a different kind of calculus, a new math in which the way to fullness runs through emptiness. Mr. So-and-so didn't do that kind of math, so the numbers didn't add up for him. He clung to what he had and in consequence lost something far greater something he never even dreamed of. But Boaz was an A student at the new math. He had an open heart. He made it clear that the transaction was not about him and his own interests, but the interests of others. Do you see what Boaz says in verse 10? Where, where the other guy's like, Ugh, if I have to perpetuate the name of the dead and you know, lose all this money, I'm, I'm not going to do the transaction. Boaz says in verse 10, that is the reason he's doing the transaction. It's not, a, it's not a minus to him. It is a positive. He's saying, I will do this kindness. I will be kind to Ruth, to, to her mother-in-law, to, their, to her husband's family, to the name of Elimelech and his descendants. I will. That is why I'm doing this thing. Caring not for his interests, but for the interests of others. And so we see Boaz doing the work of the Redeemer, rescuing taking this, this, the, you know, this woman and her mother-in-law who are vulnerable, who have little, who uh, have no protection, rescuing them from that situation, restoring them in a sense. Ruth is going to find a husband again. Naomi will, through marriage, find a son again. And the refuturing aspect of this, that, that their family all of a sudden, which seemed to have no future, will have a new future because of what Boaz does. It's beautiful. And here is the wondrous thing. When Boaz does this, when he freely gives, when he shows kindness that is sacrificial 
everyone sees and rejoices. Verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphra and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Here's the great thing that you see in Ruth chapter 4. All the prayers the town prays for them come true. And the prayer points something out. It points out that, that God, through the history of God's people, is the one who built up the house of God's people, right? Because it says, may the Lord make this woman this. May, may, may you do this, but may the Lord act for you. It attributes the building of God's people and God's house to God. In a sense, it pulls back the curtain and all these happenstance things, all the accidental things in the book of Ruth. Ruth just happens to come on Boaz's field. Boaz happens to see her. This other guy happens to be walking by. Right? All of this is not happening by happenstance, but by the Lord who is building up his house and the people see it and recognize it and ask for it. Lord, may you build up their house. Here's the point. Boaz acts selflessly as a redeemer to restore the house of another and God acts himself to secure and preserve Boaz's house. In other words, Boaz worries about others and lets God worry about him. That's the attitude of, of Boaz. Now, the application here should be that, that while we're going to talk in a minute about how we're not like Boaz exactly, we, we should seek to emulate the worthy character of Boaz. We're, we should seek to show the kindness of others, show the kindness of God to others selflessly without worrying about ourselves, but rather letting God take care of us. Because here's the reality. Boaz's name isn't lost. It appears on the first page of the New Testament in the line of the Messiah. Right, Mr. So-and-so's name, we don't even know his name, right? Nobody knows that dude's name, but the dude who gave up his name for the good of others, we know that guy's name. Those who desire to be great in the kingdom of God must be the last of all and the servant of all. That's what Boaz shows us. All right, third portrait then, the true and better redeemer. Now, this is where we see that the character of Boaz in chapter four is pointing somewhere, right? It, 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 it ends, we're going to see in a second, Ruth 4 ends in a genealogy because Ruth chapter 4 is where it is in our Bible because the very next book is 1 Samuel, which tells the story of the rise of King David, the archetypal king of Israel. And not only that, so in a sense, Boaz points forward to David, and so as we read the story, we're like, man, I wish there was a king like Boaz. Just wait, right? That's, that's the, the flow of the Old Testament. And yet, we also see in the flow of the Old Testament that David and Boaz together point to a greater king. Matthew chapter 1, the first page in the New Testament, contains this genealogy with Boaz, the husband of Ruth, the grand, fathering the, 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 the grandfather of King David, who then is the forefather of King Jesus. 
right? Boaz intentionally is pointing forward to Jesus, right? And the thing I love about Boaz is it takes place in the time of the judges, right? Which we'll talk a little bit about with the kids next week. It takes place in the time of the judges. It's a dark time. It's an evil time. Everybody, there's injustice and sin everywhere. And in the middle of that dark time, there is like this little island of kindness in Boaz's house. Remember, he, he's making his workers greet him. He's saying, may the Lord be with you. To the, and he's making them reply. He's saying, don't, don't do anything unjust. He, well, I'm in my field, nobody, nobody assaults anybody. Nobody does this. We show kindness to others. He's, he's a little island of, of goodness, of kindness. And what you're meant to see is, man, after reading Judges, I wish there was more of this. I wish this was over the entire land of Israel. And that's the longing of the Old Testament. The longing of the Old Testament is this tension between what the the mess God's people get themselves in and this glimpse that keeps appearing again and again of justice and kindness and goodness. And you're meant to think, man, how is this ever going to get resolved? And the problem is this, that, that I think in many ways, Ruth 1 shows us how we got in such a bad situation. Ruth has a hard lesson. We all want to be Boaz. We always want to think, we're, we're, I'm like Boaz here, you know? If you've gone home after the book of Ruth, you know, uh, uh, messages and you've told your spouse, you know, I've, I'm a little bit like Boaz. You know, I have a number of fields that I, you know, like, have you ever thought that? No. In fact, I think the place we start to identify is more with Elimelech and Naomi because their dilemma is the dilemma of God's people. God gives his people (laughs) a beautiful land, a land of promise, and God's people choose not to trust his provision and look for it elsewhere. They make the same choice that Adam and Eve made in the garden, right? God gives them the garden, everything is good, and they're like, yeah, what's over there though? You know, I'm not gonna trust God for my provision, I want that. In fact, I want your job, God. I wanna go to a land where I can be the king. And, and, and more understandably, Elimelech and, and Naomi, perhaps their motives were mixed. But I think we, we're meant to see there is some element there that they did not trust God to provide for them in that land, which is why they left. They went to Moab. And then Elimelech dies, and, Mo, and Naomi makes the tragic choice. I think it is a tragic choice to stay there for 10 years. And it appears had no plans to come back to God's people and God's land of promise. It is only the death of her sons that forces her back. And so in a way, I think we're all meant to identify with Naomi and Elimelech. We all choose to go to Moab, don't we? We all choose in some area of of our lives to say, you know what, the Lord's provided this. That's not what I want. I want what's over here. Lord's right. I want. I want what's over here. And and the great thing about Ruth is it 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 is a great picture of the messiness of this. Right? Well, sometimes we're sinned against by people, or sometimes hard, difficult circumstances come into our lives and take us to a difficult place. But many times, like Naomi, we choose to stay there rather than return to God's people. And so there is a there is sort of a a holistic picture of this in the book of Ruth in which that you're not sure how much responsibility Naomi bears for their difficulty and situation, but it, it does seem clear that she bears some responsibility. Either she chose to go to Moab or chose to stay in Moab, and we've done the exact same thing. And then as a result, brothers and sisters, we find ourselves in need of redemption. If we look at ourselves biblically, we have lost our freedom and are in bondage to sin. 
We have lost our homeland with God and our home of peace and fullness. We have lost our name and our true identity. We have lost our relationship with God. We have lost, most tragically, our share in the blessings of God and in the promises of God. That's where we find ourselves, lost in Moab, and that's where Christmas comes. That's where Jesus comes. Boaz is a rough outline of the kindness of God, but but Jesus is the full picture. Jesus, if we could say it this way, is God's kindness taken on flesh. Galatians chapter 4 says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those. That word, redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Jesus comes as an infant to grow up and live a perfect life under the law in order to redeem lawbreakers. In a sense, Jesus takes our name as lawbreakers and gives us his name as a law keeper so that we could be restored, so that we could be rescued, so that we could be restored, so that we could be refutured, in a sense. And look at the effect of it. Colossians 1.13 says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. How does that happen? How do we go from Moab to the promised land? In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, comes to us. And he does one better than Boaz. See, Ruth chooses to come to God's people. This would be like if the book of Ruth was that Boaz goes to Moab to seek Ruth and Naomi out. That's what Jesus has done for us. We are slaves in another land. We have chained ourselves to the wrong place. We find ourselves in a kingdom of darkness, but Jesus comes. Jesus breaks our chains. Jesus restores us to God's house. And there is always a cost to this redemption. Boaz's redemption cost him some of his money, some of his reputation, some of his name, some of his inheritance. But Jesus pays with far more precious currency. Ephesians 1.7 says this, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This phrase, through his blood, we could spend a half hour on this. In the Old Testament, the life of someone was in their blood. The blood is a picture of life itself. And blood being shed is a picture of sin leading to death. There was no bloodshed prior to that. And so, so the, through his blood means this, that Jesus laid down his very life for his people to transfer them from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light, from sinners to the saved, right? This is what Jesus does on the cross. He trades his father's house for the outer darkness that we chose for ourselves. He trades his peace for conflict and wrath. He trades his, his name, in a sense, of lawkeeper and righteous for the unrighteous and the lawbreaker. This is what Jesus has done for us, trading his name as the just for the name of the unjust. Oh, friend, look, if you are not a Christian, I really don't want you to take the wrong message away from the book of Ruth. 
There is a way to read the book of Ruth. It's just kind of like, you know what? Ruth uh, is about nice people doing nice things. And so, you know what? Have a Merry Christmas. Go out and be nice to people, right? Right? When you see the guy with the bell, go ahead and drop a few pennies in there. And you're like, that's good. That's the book of Ruth, right? That's what, what, you know, Ricky was talking about on Sunday, putting like 50 cents in the, the Red Cross thing or whatever that is. No. The message of the book of Ruth is this. That we go from Moab to the promised land through the kindness of a redeemer. Don't miss this. The message of the book of Ruth is not be nice to other people, be kind to other people. The message of the book of Ruth is that God in his infinite, immeasurable kindness has been kind to us through the sending of a redeemer in Jesus Christ so that those who are lost can be found again, so that those who are homeless can have a home again, so those who are slaves can be freed again. This is the offer of the book of Ruth, that that every Moabite, in a sense, every person outside the family of God who comes to God and asks for redemption, God answers like Boaz, I will do for you all that you ask. And he does far more. So if you are not a Christian today, hear the offer in the book of Ruth. This is something God can do for you. It's not just a nice thing that one guy did for another person thousands of years ago. It's something God offers to you for you today. And if you are a Christian, please see that the call to be kind, the call to be a kind person in the book of Ruth stands on the foundation of God's kindness. Look, the background to this is that Boaz, everything Boaz gave away, God gave to him in the first place. Boaz, uh, if, think about it this way. His name, his, his share in the promises of God was given to him when God redeemed his people from Egypt and gave them the promised land in the first place. His name, his land, his freedom from slavery, again and again, given by God to his people. And so Boaz gets it and is like, yeah, man, I just, I was given all this, you can have all this. That's where kindness comes from. Kindness will never find a root in our heart if we are stingy and trying to hold on to what we've got. It only happens when hearts are changed and transformed by the kindness of God who gives them all they have, who see everything in their life as a gift from God, but who opens their hands and makes them go, yeah, sure, what do you need? Somebody gave me all this stuff. It's amazing. Do you want some? Now, in closing, here's where I think we end. Uh, The end of this book is so beautiful. No exaggeration to say, it's one of the most beautiful pieces of literature in the ancient Near East. Remember chapter one. Remember chapter one, where Naomi watches her husband die along with her two sons, where Ruth watches her husband die and has no children. Remember that as we read verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is worth more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. 
Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Oh, guys, look, look, think of God's kindness. Remember, the trajectory of Ruth is from emptiness to fullness through the kindness of God. And look at what God does. For Boaz, Boaz receives a precious wife. Right. Many people would say that Ruth, that, that Ruth should be included in the wisdom literature of uh, the, the gospel, I, I mean of the Old Testament canon, because Ruth is the embodiment of the Proverbs 31 wife. Especially she makes her arms strong. That's in Proverbs 31. Ruth lifts. Other th- all the other good characteristics are there as well, right? Boaz is given, right? She walks up to him. Like, he's just minding those business. God sends this wife to him in his infinite kindness, which I'm sure he's like, man, this is amazing. She proposed to me. I love, you know, like, love this. And not only that, but in thinking he may lose his name, he gains a name in the lineage of the king of Israel. And not just the king of Israel, the king of kings. I mean, this is an insane kindness to Boaz. And then Ruth, look at Ruth. She had lost her husband. I'm sorry, I'm just thinking about people in our church that have lost spouses. She's lost her husband. She's left her homeland. She has no one other than a bitter mother-in-law and a hovel of a house foraging for scraps in a field. And evidently, what, what seems clear is that she had, in her first marriage, not been able to have children, and the implication of Scripture is that she was barren. And then we read the phrase, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And at the end of the book of Ruth, she looks up and sees in Boaz a man of kindness and character. She looks down, she looks around herself to see that she, as an outsider, has been welcomed into the community of God's people in Bethlehem. And she looks down and she she holds in her hands the kindness of God in her son. Oh, this is incredible kindness. And then Naomi. In many ways, Naomi deceptively, is the main character in the book of Ruth. She opens and closes the book. And think of what, about what she's done. She's lost. She thought she had lost her land forever, her share in the promises of God. She then lost her husband. She then lost both of her sons. She then cried out that the hand of the Lord was against her, that she was utterly empty of anything good in life. And yet she ends the book with a daughter that the people say is worth more than seven sons. Now, that doesn't happen in the ancient world, right? The, like, God's people were some of the only people in the ancient world that valued women in this way, by the way. And, and, and they're crying out, that, that girl, she's worth more than seven boys, right? That, that is unbelievable. And, and you look at the phrase. This phrase wrecks me. I think I want to cry every time I read this phrase when they, verse 17, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, look at what they say, a son 
has been born to, not Ruth, to Naomi. Because in many ways, it, this, this boy was Naomi's son. It represented, it represented the rescue of her family, the restoration of her family, the refuturing of her her family, all wrapped up in this one child. And then she gets to spend her old age caring for this little guy. <laughs> I love it. Now, as we end, two, two quick things I want you to notice. What do we do as we end the book of Ruth? Well, I think we're meant to take these two things away. Look at what the townspeople say to Naomi in verse 14. Oh, sorry, verse 15. It says... God shall be to you a restorer of your life and a nourisher of your old age. The story of every Christian ends in Ruth chapter four. And God promises every son or daughter these two things. What, what, what is prayed for Naomi <laughs> And we see ourselves in Naomi's journey is, is prayed and spoken over us in a sense that God will be to you a restorer of life. One of the most staggeringly beautiful things at the end of Ruth is that the very places of emptiness in chapter one, God fills in chapter four. God dispenses no generic grace. God sees the specific places of emptiness in this family and he brings fullness through the kindness of a redeemer. Meaning this, the very places in these characters' lives that they cried out, God, why have you hurt? Why have you left me here? God, why am I empty here? God, I have nothing here in this spot in my life. God then fills in his kindness. The, the, the arc of every Christian story is in Ruth 1 to 4. The arc of God's people is in Ruth 1 through 4. Do you know why? Because what does what, what history end in? From Genesis to Revelation, the, the, the scriptures end in a wedding of the Redeemer to his beloved. And so the arc of every Christian is Ruth 1 to 4. And the problem is this. Most of us live in Ruth 3 in the tension of it, but what's going to happen? And yet the down payment has been paid through Christ on the cross. And how do we, but we live in that tension and we wonder, are we ever going to get to Ruth chapter 4? And, and the book of Ruth is given to God's people to say, yes, every place of emptiness will be filled. It says in Revelation that when God comes for his people, every tear will be wiped away. Nobody cries generic tears. People cry tears because of the places of emptiness and loss in their life. And what that means is that in the end, the Lord, the God of kindness, through the kindness of a redeemer, will fill every place of emptiness in your life, Christian. He will not leave you where you are. He leaves no Christian in Ruth 1. Through Christ, everyone is brought to this place of fullness, a restorer of life. Maybe that's relationships. Maybe that's peace. Maybe that's your health. Maybe that's wholeness. Maybe that's some other area of your life. But Christian, if it is good, truly good, God will restore it in his time.
And thank God that so many times he gives glimpses of it now, right? It's so kind that while we wait for a redeemer where God, the king has not come yet in Ruth 4, he's still to come in David. While the king has not come, a glimpse of it is given to this beautiful family. The second thing that God does is he is a nourisher or sustainer of us. <sighs> until we get there, until we get home, God promises to sustain us. And Christmas is the loudest statement God could make that he is with us. Jesus promised, church, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Christmas every year is a reminder that God has come to us. God has come to us and he will come again. Let me end with uh, one more comment about that, that house my grandparents uh, used to to own that we don't have anymore. I, I got this piece of artwork, right? And, and I remember the feeling of like, see, just in that moment, seeing through the artwork into that room with my family. And I don't know why, but this year, I feel the places of emptiness more than I have in years past around Christmas. I feel the people that are not around the tree. I feel the cousins that have moved away. I feel the sense of loss that happens as you grow up and grow older. And I remember just, just feeling like, man, what a bummer. <laughs> I, just, I'm just, I just feel the loss. And in this moment, I'm studying Ruth chapter four, not even thinking about that, th that thing. And I felt the Lord say, you're longing for home. and you will be home one day. Because what I long for as I think about those windows and I think about that tree, guys, is not just these, you know, some generic family members and a hallmark ending. What I long for is a place of security and wholeness. I long to belong to a people, to look around at people and feel like these are my people and they love me. I long for a place of stability and wholeness where the dark doesn't enter in. I long for people that I love to be preserved and whole. I long to be uh, not hurt with all of the injuries in my 30s anymore, where I was a 10-year-old that was bouncing off the walls and injuring myself constantly, and I just, they just, everything just grew back, right? I just, I long for that. But really, it's a longing for home. And Ruth chapter four is a reminder, son or daughter of God, you have a share in the blessings of God. You have a share in the promises of God. And it's no longer wrapped up in a physical piece of land anymore. It is wrapped up in the Savior himself and the deposit of his presence in your heart today. So take heart. The story is not over. Rejoice this week as you see God's kindness around Christmas time. But when you find those places of emptiness, remind yourself, Ruth 4 is coming. Would you stand? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we end today, Lord, I pray that we'd be honest with you right now just about the areas in our hearts that we feel a sense of emptiness and loss.
I pray for those who are feeling those places of emptiness and loss who may be tempted to look up and, and say like Naomi, why is the hand of the Lord against me? Lord, I pray that as they see the Redeemer, that they would see that, that you are far more for them than they know in Christ. God, you, you care so much about them that you sent your son to bring them from Moab to the promised land, from the land of darkness to the land of light, to rescue them, to restore them, to refuture them in the work of Christ. And Lord, I pray that they, this week, then would go out as they see the coming of Christ, as they see the celebration of the incarnation, they would see you always keep your promises. How much more will you keep the promise to return and to restore? So as we wait for that day, God, restore us and sustain us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.